Okay, well, I'm not sure how you preach after that. Um, that is going to be interesting to find out how I managed to find anything good to say after all the profoundness of Alan and Clem Gray. Um, the one thing I just wanted to add was the day that um, I got ordained as an elder, it was Alan and Clem Gray who laid hands on Laura and I. And they, they, weren't just, they weren't just going to pray for us on that day, but they prayed for us for a long, long time. And they wrote down the promises of God and scriptures for us. And at the time, with Laura's depression, she stuck up some of the verses that Clemency wrote for Laura. And she stuck them on the inside of her door. So that in the mornings when she had very little strength in her own self, she would go to those scriptures and she would strengthen herself in the Lord. So I just honor these guys. Um, and yeah, let's see if I can preach this a bit quicker um, than what I had planned. We're going to be taking notes furiously quickly today, I can tell you. So get your Bibles out, get your notepads out, because we're in the minor prophets this year. We've done Malachi, we've done Zechariah. But we, I wanted to change up the schedule and preach something that would speak into the legacy of people like Alan and, and Clem Gray. I wanted to preach a sermon that would make people like you and I be able to be the type of people who would spend our whole life to build for God's glory. That we would be a people that have a kingdom perspective and that we would be a people that have a kingdom priority about our life. So those are actually gonna be the two headings for today is that we are to be a people of a kingdom priority and a kingdom perspective. I think I've messed up the AV team. I don't know. Um, if they know any more what's going on. But you guys can take notes there. We're in this book of Haggai, and I thought that that was going to speak into the legacy um, that we need to be builders of for God's glory, like Alan and Clem Gray. And so just to quickly, I'm going to fly over the context twice as quickly as I would have. The context is the same as Zechariah, all right? If you've been here before for Zechariah, you know what's potting. We've got the Israelites. They've been captives in Babylon, but God sends the Persians and he's like, okay, I'll move that piece on the chessboard. So he sends the Persians to go take over the Babylonians. And these, Bab these Persians don't have beef with Israel. They're like, you guys can go back to Jerusalem. Feel free to build up that thing because it's so broken. And so many of them do. And that's the place where we find ourselves in the book of Haggai is they return to this broken place where the temple lies in, in ruins. And in 536 BC, they start building the temple of God. But also the flippant Samaritans rock up on the scene and they start threatening and Israel chicken out. So for 15 years, the house is in ruins whilst they concentrate on their own houses. And so that leads us to the starting point that I want to bring us to. Heading number one, we are to be a, a people with a kingdom priority. So if you're there in Haggai, turn to Haggai chapter one, verse two. God is about to bring a fat rebuke. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Listen, when God says these people, instead of my people, you know this is trouble. So God is about to get sarcastic. He says, it's not time to build my house. Yet he says in verse five, oh, so is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. God says, it's not a time to build my house, but evidently you do feel it is a time for you to live in really nice houses yourselves. 
In fact, the word used is paneled houses. And in Jerusalem, there's not much of a wood industry going on. They're strong on stone masonry. So to be able to trick out their houses with these wooden panels, they'd have to go far into Phoenicia and Lebanon to like get wood to bring it all the way many kilometers back to their own house just so they can live in nice paneled houses. So God says, it's not time to build my house, but you have lots of time and energy to haul many kilometers to import goods to trick out your home. So this is like a giant episode of dream home makeover. This is like a national episode of Cribs. Everyone comparing who has the best house. So God sends his prophet Haggai. And the name Haggai means festive. But his message wasn't very festive. I think there's a bit of irony from the Lord here. Um, So he comes in and he says, basically, God did not save you from the hands of oppressors for you to just discard him like a used dishcloth when you're done. But God intended to save you so you can be a part of his kingdom work in this world and build up this temple so God's glory might come again into this house in Israel and the people will know the reality of God. And just whilst this is very important for this preachers, the idea of the kingdom of God, let us once again define this, that the kingdom of God doesn't refer to a physical territory, but refers to God's rule, reign, and influence over the whole world. In Psalm 103, we read that the Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. But the scandalous thing is that God has chosen as we've seen in the lives of the grace, to extend his kingdom via people. In Genesis, we read that God gave dominion and rulership over people to expand his kingdom. Goes on steroids when Abraham and his descendants are made into a nation, are given a land and are given a blessing that they would advance his kingdom by being his chosen people, representatives representing himself to the world. And then we read through Jesus that you and I in South Africa have become part of that blessing, that we've entered into that and we are extending God's rule and reign via our lives here on earth. So much so that first Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you know that you are a chosen, set apart, royal representative of the kingdom of God? And did you know that this entails, if this is true, then we need to be putting God first in all things. This is not a fancy theology preach like Clem said. This is a straightforward, go back to 2008 In God first, you would have heard a very similar preach. We need to put God first. If we are citizens of his kingdom, it's God's house before my house. Time for God before time for me. Resources to God before resources for me. That's why Haggai throws down the big challenge. Verse five, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is a call for us to examine our life, audit. Are we spending our lives on the things which matter? Are we building a kingdom legacy? Because these people at one point were keen to build the temple. Next moment, they're not keen. What happened in between? They just got absorbed into their own lives. I throw a word of caution to us that for all the good that's happened in this pandemic regarding our spiritual faith, the one negative is that sometimes we can just draw into our own shells and get absorbed into our own little stories. And we read in this text that it does nothing good because in verse five and six, it says that consider your ways. You have sown much, you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. 
This is a story of a people who said, I'm prioritizing myself, and yet they find themselves less satisfied than they were at the start. They said for 15 years, we're going to prioritize our own house. But God says, so what do you have to show for it? For the 15 years you said, I'm focusing on me, nothing has actually happened. And what we see here is that they're more miserable than they were before. John Piper, he says of this, that if you spend your time and your energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration. And so God has a reality check for us. Can we consider our ways? And part of the reason, by the way, why they actually didn't go very far is because God actually made that the case. We read in verses 9 to 11, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. God says, I take responsibility. You had dreams, you had aspirations, they were not forthcoming because God said, I actually was the one who removed all prosperity that you desired. Which leads us to a question, is God vindictive to do that? And the answer is that when our bend is away from God, the kindest thing the Father can do is not give us over to the desires of our heart, to turn away from our prayers and frustrate our ways so that we can return to the Lord so that there is eternal prosperity in that place. God's not after the quick fix. And in fact, the, the position of the Bible counterintuitively is that the worst thing you can do with your life is be committed to your own life. We read Jesus saying in Mark 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Jim Elliot, missionary, he says of this verse that he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is a no-brainer. That if God is God, then we should surrender every notion of self-advance. Self-advance? <laughs> it's as if the God came behind that word in power. Says the Lord of hosts. Surrender all notions of self-advance. Um, if God really is God, we should surrender all to Him. No, not because of legalism, but because Jesus Christ did not seek to keep His own life, but willingly gave it away in exchange for our soul. That's the kind of ammo that makes us say, but I wanna give it all to Jesus. He gave it all to me. The fact is that if this is our attitude, we should, it should change the way that we draft our calendar. It should change the way that we draft our budget. It should change our prayers. Lord, less of me, more of you. If God really is God. So he tells these guys, I want you to repent. I want you to turn. So in verse eight, he says to them, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So God says, because he's got a sense of humor, you know how you unnecessarily went very far to go get wood for your own houses? I want you to send this, expend the same energy to go up to those hills and get wood to build my house, to show that your heart has actually changed. Because what really needs to change here is not just the actions of the people, but their heart. The big issue does not actually revolve around the fact they neglected God's house as much as the fact that they were indifferent to God's glory and His kingdom. This is the big issue. 
But luckily, what we do see is a change of heart, not just actions. Heart first, action second. Because in Haggai 1.12, it says, Then those people actually obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the people feared the Lord. Now, we've taught on that phrase before. It doesn't mean we need to watch out because God's going to strike us down with a lightning bolt. We must fear the Lord. It means that we have awe and reverence for Him. The root word that's translated fear of the Lord comes from when your breath is taken away, like when you see a view that you just creates a feeling in your stomach. They feared the Lord. They had awe and reverence for God. So what we don't see is that God brought a rebuke and they said, right boys, let's get some shovels. Let's go up to the cedar wood and uh, let's build the house of the Lord. But instead, what we do see is that this, these words cut to the heart and that the people were turned back to the Lord. And so... We need to really be cut to the heart today because if God isn't God, I would suggest that you never come back to church and you never read a page of the Bible and you never pray ever again. But if God is God, the only response is to surrender our all to Him. Not He's not a sprinkle on add-on. God is everything. If He's real, we've got to serve Him with all we've got. That's why N.T. Wright, theologian, he says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? that the fires become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Because Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham. It's nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. That's the two options. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of these two things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of in between. And God wants to challenge us. The shallow world of the in between is the only invalid place to be considering the claims of God. God wants us to know if He is our King, He's our Savior, and we serve Him with all of we ha- that we have. And so that is why we have a kingdom priority. Because God prioritized saving us, we prioritize doing everything for Him. That's kingdom priority. Now that we feel well challenged, I hope I did that in quick time. We're going to move on to something that might encourage us a bit more, a kingdom perspective. The people start building, well done. But then three weeks later, they stop again because there's discouragement that settles into the camp. Now we need to talk about this because this happens in our Christian life. We reach discouragement. We prioritize God, but then after seasons, we're like, oh, well, we need to hear this word again. God sends in Mr. Festive one more time. And he says in verse three, so of hands, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's talking about the temple of Solomon, which was full of jewels and was hectically cool. And then he says to them, how do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? See, Solomon's temple was laced with jewels. It was awesome. And the people of the older generation started to feel really sorrowful about this pathetic construction that they were engaged with. So much so that Ezra 3 says that many old men from the first house, uh, who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice as they saw this foundation being laid, whilst many shouted for joy. So we have a young hopeful generation who never had a temple, drowned out by the fact that we have an older generation who are bitter about the fact that what they're seeing com- doesn't compare to what they've seen before. What this older generation had done is they had allowed their rearview mirror to dictate their front windscreen. 
they were incapable to see the thing that God was doing now because they were hung up in the things that God has done in the past. Now, this can happen to an individual, but it can happen to a church as well. That we need to be on our guard against rosy retrospective that seeks to rob us of the joy of what God is doing in God's house today. That we can't get hung up in the rearview mirror, idealizing the past. Because there were people that were amped to build this temple. Suddenly, all of a sardine, not interested. Is God even in this thing anymore? So we need to be on our guard because discouragement often leads to bitterness. Bitterness often spurs into criticism. Criticism becomes gossip. Gossip becomes slander. Slander sows disunity and the blessing of God is sacrificed in the church. So we need to be on our guard against this. There's nothing wrong about looking at the past to honor God's faithfulness. That's a different matter. We've just been doing it this morning. God, it's, it's in order to see that God was faithful. God was faithful in the days when PJ led this church. God was faithful in the days when Glenn led this church. The fact is God was faithful then and he's faithful now. In fact, we building on a found, we, we have a, a foundation that was laid for us that we just get to harvest in. Uh, John 4 says that one sows, this is like the people that have come before, and another reaps, people like me. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. So there's something beautiful about honoring those people that have come before and what God has done before. But the moment that you get stuck in the past saying, remember the revival of the 1960s or remember PJ's days, it'll never be like that again. Remember before COVID, it's never gonna be like that again. Be careful because you are robbing God of his joy in the church today. Just be careful because the form of church might change, but God never does because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the great I am. He's the uncreated God. He, there's no shadow or variation of change with our God. So be careful of saying that it'll never be as good as in those days because what we do see is something quite the opposite. Subpoint one, if we wanna be a people with a kingdom perspective, then we need to arm ourselves with the perspective that the best is yet to come. It says in this scripture that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give my peace, declares the Lord. So God speaks to the discouraged people. He says, this little building that you think is insignificant, I'm gonna dwell in that thing. God is in the business of taking unimpressive things and bringing them to his glory. That's why Piper says, there is a principle here for you and for me that God takes small imperfect things and he builds them into a habitation for his glory. It's in, God's in the business of using the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. God's currency is in an upside down kingdom. So take heart, Israel, this little stump of a building is gonna be greater than the former. And take heart, God first city, because the future of this church is better than the past. Glenn Campbell in city Atlanta, the best is yet to come. PJ Smythe, Monument Church, the best is yet to come. We need to arm ourselves with this perspective. David Mathis, he's a pastor that says that the grace of God manifest in Jesus is our rock solid liberation from crippling nostalgia and from bellyaching about the former glory because by faith we expect a latter glory that far outstrips the little foretaste of the glory that we've had so far. That's why Paul says, I forget what lies behind. I don't know about the rearview mirror. I strive on for the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. Here we notice that maturity is not an age, it's a perspective. And here we also note in our church, we don't have people 
that are in the older generations that are, are like, oh, the, the back in the day was the best and this is nonsense. We have Caleb's in this house. Caleb's biggest conquests happened in his later years. And our church is full of people advanced in years that say the work of God is not done and I'm here and as long as I'm here and God's not done, I'm gonna be a part of that work. I love that. I love the fact there's young guns like me. My blood is pumping full of Jesus, but I'm a young gun. I wanna see the 80-year-olds striving on towards those things because that's what counts. It's about how we end this marathon, not how we begin. The best when it comes to God is yet to come because His kingdom is advancing. It's still to be fulfilled. The best is yet to come. So be strong. Be strong. Do you know, Alan Gray would always end off his, his uh, emails with a signature, be strong, Alan. Well, God wants you to be strong today. He says, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Be strong, all of you people of the land because I am with you, declares the Lord, and my spirit remains in your midst. So when we feel that this work is too great, that it's not gonna be accomplished, we need to arm ourselves with the kingdom perspective, for God is with me. God is with me. They were looking for decorations and well, bells and whistles. God's like, no, no, no. In this unimpressive stump of a structure, I'm gonna meet you in that place. God's in the business of meeting us in our most unimpressive, measly state that we can possibly be. God is the God that says, I meet in that. I look to the heart. It wasn't ever about the structure. It's about the cry of the hearts of the people within that structure. We've got a great property, but it doesn't actually matter. It matters what the faith of the people are that inhabit this property. And the fact is that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit now, that God is within us in a greater measure than God was with them in the Old Testament. He says, I'm with you. He's with us with the greatest sense. He indwells us. And so when we engage with this kingdom work, we do so with the power of God backing us. So when we feel discouraged, no, it's not down to you. God is working within you. That's why Philippians, Paul says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So therefore, as Paul prayed, let God fulfill every resolve for every good work and every work by faith, by his power in God first city in 2021. Because God says, I am with you. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Unless God builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. But if God is building the house, no power of hell can stand against the will of the Lord. He reigns from heaven in might and in power. No one can withstand what he has put in place. That's why author Vance Harver, this goes for anyone under pressure today that feels like you've done to crack. He says that the ocean will hold the battleship, but God's grace will stand any weight that you put on it. Well, Clem Gray said the greatest revelation she has had is the depth of the grace of God. That's gonna uphold the battleship under any conditions. So the kingdom perspective says, but God is with me. If the Lord is on my side, then who shall I fear? What can man do to me? Or as my metal band for today scream in their chorus, I bear the mark of the uncreated God. So tell me, what should I fear? We bear the scars of the holy risen son. So tell me, what should we fear? Because every threat is hollow because our victory is already set in stone. When we feel discouraged, we must arm ourselves with the perspective, but God is with me. And lastly, from this passage, 
when we feel discouraged, when the poisonous lie comes in of doubt, we reason from the perspective that says, but God keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant. Verse five, he says, because of the covenant that I made with you in Egypt. So God says, do you remember how when I split the sea and there was a wall of water on your left and on your right and you walked through on dry land and the chariots were drowned. Remember how I rescued you on that day and I made you a promise and I said, I'm your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember how I delivered on that. I'm the same God who's promising that today. Remember how I said, you're gonna get a land and it looked impossible because there were giants in the land and everyone was complaining. Well, God delivered on that. I am the same God who delivered on that promise and I'm here with you today. Remember how you were under oppressor's rule, but God said, I will deliver you from their hand. He came through, why? Because he is faithful to his covenant. And we reason from that perspective, if we have a kingdom perspective, that God doesn't change, his name is I am, the great always. But the scandalous thing is we have greater promises than the people back then, because we don't have to stand on the power of the Exodus. We have the greater Exodus of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the greater covenant, which was forgiveness through the shedding of Jesus' blood and the breaking of his body. That speaks to people like me who hated God, but yet because of the blood of Jesus, I find forgiveness because God is faithful, not because James is anything, but because the Lord is a covenant keeper, that you can be the most wretched individual. But God says, I look at the blood. You covered by me. Beautiful. Look at the covenant faithfulness of our Lord. And if God's snatch James now out of the darkness into marvelous light. How can I not reason in these small matters of building his kingdom that he will be faithful to me in these small matters if he clutched me from death to life? And so the kingdom perspective reasons, God is faithful to his covenant. To the first time that they built the temple, God said, be strong and courageous and do it. Don't be afraid, don't be dismayed for the Lord, my God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And the same God that empowered that building of the temple is the same God that will empower this building of the temple. And the same God who empowered anything in the Bible is the God that empowers us to do his kingdom work. So I want you to stand. I don't know how quickly I managed to do that. And I want you to take this verse to, no, to heart because it's etched on my heart now. It says, like Alan Gray would have us say, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when we came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. In response to this, I want our hearts to sing. I don't want us to just sing, I want our hearts to sing. And as we're gonna sing, we're gonna sing that your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands and this is my confidence that you've never failed me yet. That I've seen you move, you move the mountains and I believe I'll see you do it again. The same God who did that is the same God who is with us now. And I want us to see that we don't need to look in the rear view mirror because we reason with the kingdom perspective that says the best is yet to come. That we don't need to be afraid or dismayed because of the kingdom perspective that says, but God is with me. 
who can stand against and that we don't need to be a people who doubt the Lord because he's a covenant keeper. That which he says he must come through on. He cannot contradict himself or be a liar. So that which God has promised he comes through on. He was faithful then. He's faithful now. Let's sing of this mighty Jesus Christ forever. Let's sing.